why we have pulled out this old podium. Does anybody, who here remembers our days in Teterboro? Few of you back, back, it's a long time ago now. Uh, but this was my pulpit when we were back, when we were back in Teterboro. So it feels like kind of an old friend that I have here again. Because actually what I like about it is I could lean on it. I would always lean on it. And so I can't lean on that little table that we have. But, uh, but listen, the reason that this is out here, what we're doing something a little bit different today. This is Martin Luther King, uh, weekend where we're celebrating the birth of Martin Luther King. And, uh, and so I, I've been thinking, you know, we usually do something in honor of that. And, and I, I was really wanting to kind of see what more can we do to really honor, you know, the life of this incredible man who, who uh, God used in such a powerful way to, to bring about real significant change in our country. You know, it, if it wasn't for the, the movement that he led, and, and I would say what God did through him, you know, brought an end to the Jim Crow laws that had just caused so much suffering in the South. It moved us, moved us forward, took significant steps for civil rights. And, and Martin Luther King was someone who loved Jesus and someone who was absolutely committed to the gospel and the Jesus way. And, and so Charles and I were, were talking uh, last year, after last Martin Luther King uh, Day, and he said, hey, listen, you know, there's this thing that I've done. I've done it a number of times, and I've done it in a number of different churches where I, I've delivered a sermon that Martin Luther King Jr. gave kind of as Martin Luther King. And, uh, and I said, that, that sounds awesome. I've never seen such a thing. That'd be really cool. And, uh, and, and so um, we just thought this would be a great way to kind of honor his legacy, to celebrate. But, but when I read the sermon that Charles is going to come out and present in a moment, um, you know, I've, I've heard a lot of Martin Luther King's speeches, you know, his famous speech at the mall, the I Have a Dream speech. I don't know if I'd ever heard a sermon. And uh, man, it's good. And I'll tell you, here's the thing: it, it, it it's something. It, it's the title. What what he's what Paul's uh, what what Charles is going to deliver is it's called Paul's Letter to American Christians. It was delivered by Dr. Martin Luther King um, at Dexter Avenue Baptist Church in Montgomery, Alabama, in 1956. So Dr. King was 27 years old when uh, when he gave this gave the sermon, and so this was 64 years ago. And and what you're going to what you're going to see as you as you hear this. Um, you are really going to see it's just timeless. It, 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 was, it was a necessary word back in 1956, and it is a necessary word in 2021. And so Charles is going to come out in a moment, and he's going to kind of come out in character, and he's going to... Now, here's the thing. You'll notice that Charles, you know, we kind of kind of cleaned up a little bit, and uh, uh, I thought he was going to wear like one of those skinny 1950s ties. And so I saw him this morning. I said, where's your tie? He's like, I can't do a tie. I, and I said, you're in the right movement, you know, being a vineyard pastor, not being able to do ties. You're, you're right at home. So anyway, uh, here's Charles. And I can, I can say this, especially after, you know, hearing, hearing it at 9 o'clock, uh, we are all in for something special. This morning, I'd like to share with you all an imaginary letter from the pen of the Apostle Paul. The postmark reveals that it comes from the city of Ephesus, and upon opening the letter, I find that it was written in Koine Greek rather than in English. At the top of the first page, it says, Please read to your congregation as soon as possible 
and then pass along to the other churches. For several weeks, I have worked assiduously with its translation. At times, it has been difficult, but I now think I have deciphered its true meaning. May I hasten to say that if it sounds strangely kingin more than Paulinian, please attribute that to my lack of complete objectivity rather than Paul's lack of clarity. It is miraculous indeed that Paul would be writing a letter to us nearly 1,900 years after his final letter appeared in the New Testament. How this is possible is somewhat of an enigma wrapped in mystery. The important thing, however, is that I can imagine that the Apostle Paul would be writing a letter to American Christians in 1956 A.D., and here is the letter as it stands before me. Ah, an apostle of Jesus Christ by the will of God to you who are in America. Grace and peace be unto you from God our Father through our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. For many years I have longed to become able to come see you. I've heard so much about you and what you are doing. I've heard of these fascinating and outstanding advances that you have made in the scientific realm. I've heard of your dashing subways and flashing airplanes. Through your scientific genius, you've been able to dwarf distance and place time in chains. You've been able to carve highways through the stratosphere so that in your world, you made it possible to eat breakfast in New York City and dinner in Paris, France. I've heard about your skyscraping buildings with their prodigious towers steeping heavenward. I've heard of your great medical advances, which have resulted in the curing of many dreaded plagues and diseases thereby prolonging your lives and making for greater security and well-being. All of this is marvelous that you can do so many things in your day that I could not do in my Greco-Roman world. In your age, you can travel distances in one day that would take me three months to travel. This is wonderful that you have made such tremendous strides in the area of scientific and technological development. Out of America, as I look to you from afar, I wonder whether your moral and spiritual progress has been commiserate with your scientific progress. It seems to me that your moral progress lags behind your scientific progress. Your poet Thoreau says, improved means to an unimproved end. How often this is true. You have allowed the material means by which you live to outdistance the spiritual ends for which you live. You have allowed your mentality to outrun your morality. You have allowed your civilization to outdistance your culture. Through your scientific genius, you have made the world a neighborhood, but through your moral and spiritual genius, you have failed to make it a brotherhood. So, America, I urge you, keep your moral advances abreast with your scientific advances. I am now impelled to write to you concerning the responsibilities to live as Christians in an unchristian world. This is what I had to do. This is what every Christian has to do. But I understand there are many Christians in America who give their ultimate allegiance to man-made systems and customs. They are afraid to be different. Their great concern is to be accepted socially, so they live by such a principle as everybody's doing it, so it must be all right. For so many of you, morality is merely a group consensus. In your postmodern sociolingo, it's the mores are accepted as the right ways. 
You have unconsciously come to believe that right is discovered by taking a sort of Gallup poll of majority public opinion. How many have given their ultimate allegiance in this way? But American Christians, I must say to you, as I said to the Roman Christians years ago, be not conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Or as I said to the Philippian Christians, ye are the colony of heaven. This means that although you live in the colony of time, your ultimate allegiance is the empire of eternity. You see, you have a dual citizenship. You live in both time and eternity, both in heaven and on earth. Therefore, your ultimate allegiance is not to the government, not to the state, not to the nation, not to any man-made institution. No, the Christian owes his ultimate allegiance to God Almighty. And if any earthly institution conflicts with God's will, it is your Christian duty to take a stand against it. Now, you must never allow the transitory effervescent demands of man-made institutions to take precedence over the eternal demands of Almighty God. Now, I understand that you have this economic system known as capitalism. Through this economic system, you have been able to do wonders. You have become the richest nation in the world. You have built up great systems of production that history has ever known. All of this is marvelous, but Americans, there's a danger that you will misuse your capitalism. I still contend that money can be the root of all evil. It can cause one to live a life of gross materialism. And I'm afraid that so many among you are more concerned about making a living than making a life. You are prone to judge the success of your profession by the index of your salary rather than by... God's purposes. The misuse of capitalism can lead to tragic exploitation. This has so happened in your nation many times. They tell me that one-tenth of one percent of America controls 40 percent of the wealth. Oh, America, how you have taken the necessities from the masses to give luxuries to the classes. If you are truly to be a Christian nation, you must solve this problem. And you can't solve this problem through communism, for communism is a system based on ethical relativism and metaphysical materialism that no Christian can accept. You can work within the framework of your democracy to bring about a better distribution of wealth. You can use your powerful economic resources to wipe poverty from the face of the earth. God never intended for one group of people to live in superfluous wealth while others live in abject, deadening poverty. God intends that all of his children have the basic seeds of life. And he has left in the universe enough to spare. So I call upon you to bridge the gulf between abject poverty and superfluous wealth. Now I wish that I could be with you all in person so I could say to you face to face what I'm forced to say in writing. Oh, how long for your fellowship. But let me rush on to say something about the church, America. I must remind you, as I said to so many others before, that the church is a body of Christ. So the church, when it's true to its nature, knows neither division nor disunity. But I'm disturbed by what I hear of the American church. They tell me that you have within the Protestant church more than 256 denominations. The tragedy is not so much that you have such a multiplicity of denominations, but these denominations are warring against each other. 
How could this be? You see, this narrow sectarianism is destroying the unity of the body of Christ. You must come to see that God is neither Baptist nor Methodist. He's neither Presbyterian nor Episcopalian. No, God is bigger than all of our denominations. If you are to be true witnesses for Christ, you must come to see this, America. Now, I must not stop with criticisms of the Protestant church, for I'm disturbed by the Roman Catholic church. This church stands with all of its pomp and power, insisting that it possesses the only truth. It incorporates an arrogance that becomes a dangerous spiritual arrogance. It stands with this noble pope who somehow rises to the miraculous heights of infallibility when he speaks ex cathedra, but I'm disturbed by any man or institution that would claim infallibility in this world. I'm disturbed by any church that would refuse to cooperate with other churches under the pretense that it is the only true church. I must emphasize that God is not a Roman Catholic and that the boundless sweep of his revelation cannot be limited to the Vatican. Roman Catholicism has a great deal to mend their ways. Now, there's another thing that disturbs me to no end about the American church. You have a white church and you have a Negro church. You have allowed segregation to seep into the doors of the church. How can such division exist in the true body of Christ? You see, you must face the tragic fact that when you stand at 11 a.m. on Sunday morning to sing all hail the power of Jesus name and dear Lord, father of all mankind, you stand at the most segregated hour in Christian America. They tell me that there's more integration in the secular institutions than there is in the church. How could this be? How appalling is this? I understand that there are Christians among you who try to justify segregation on the basis of the Bible. They argue that the Negro is inferior by nature because of Noah's curse upon the children of Ham. Oh, friends, this is blasphemy. This is against everything that the Christian religion stands for. I must say to you, as I've said to so many Christians before, that in Christ there's neither Jew nor Gentile, neither bond nor free, there's neither male nor female, for we are all one in Christ Jesus. Moreover, let me read out the words that I spoke at Mars Hill, that God that created the world and all things therein hath made one blood of all nations of men to dwell upon the face of the earth. So, Americans, I must urge you to get rid of every aspect of segregation. You see, the broad universalism of the stunter of the gospel makes both the theory and practice of segregation morally unjustifiable. Segregation is a blatant denial of the unity which we have in Christ Jesus. You see, it substitutes the I-it relationship for the I-thou relationship. It relegates the segregated to the status of a thing rather than elevate them to the status of a person. The underlying philosophy of Christianity is diametrically opposed to the underlying philosophy of segregation, and all the dialectics of the logicians cannot make them lie down together. Now, I praise your Supreme Court for rendering a great decision two or three years ago. I'm happy to know that many persons of goodwill have accepted the decision as a great moral victory. But I understand that there are some brothers among you who have risen up in open defiance. I hear their legislative halls ring loud with words such as nullification and interposition. They have lost the true meaning of democracy and Christianity. 
So I'd urge that each of you would plead with your brothers and tell them that this isn't the way. With understanding and goodwill, you are obligated to seek to change their attitudes. Let them know that in standing against integration, they are not only standing against the precepts of your democracy, but they stand against the eternal edicts of God himself. Yes, America, there's still a need for the Amos cry. Let judgment roll down as waters and righteousness as a mighty stream. May I say just a word to those of you all who are struggling against this evil. Always be sure that you struggle with Christian methods and Christian weapons. Never succumb to the temptation of becoming bitter. As you press on for justice, be sure to move with dignity and discipline, using only the weapon of love. Let no man pull you so low as to hate him. Avoid violence, for if you succumb to the temptation of using violence, well, you then now subject generations with a long and desolate night of bitterness. And your chief legacy to the future will be an endless reign of meaningless chaos. In your struggle for justice, let your oppressor know that you are not attempting to defeat or humiliate him, or even pay him back for injustices that he has heaped upon you. Let him know that you are merely seeking justice for him as well as for yourself. Let him know that the festering soil of segregation debilitates the white man as much as the Negro. With this attitude, you will be able to keep your struggle on high Christian standards. Now, many persons will realize the urgency of seeking to eradicate the evil of segregation. There will be many Negroes who will devote their lives to the cause of freedom. There will be many white persons of goodwill and strong moral sensitivity who will dare to take a stand for justice. But now, honesty impels me to admit that such a stand will require a willingness to suffer and sacrifice. So don't despair if you are condemned and persecuted for righteousness' sake. Whenever you take a stand for the truth and justice, you are liable to scorn. Often you will be called an impractical idealist or a dangerous radical. Sometimes it might mean going to jail. If such is the case, you must honorably grace the jail with your presence. It might even mean physical death. But if physical death is a price that some must pay to free their children from a permanent life of psychological death, then nothing can be more Christian. Don't worry about persecution, America. You're going to have that if you stand for a great principle. Now, I can say this with some authority because my life was filled with a continuous round of persecution. You see, after my conversion, I was rejected by the disciples in Jerusalem. Later, I was tried for heresy in Jerusalem. I was jailed in Philippi, beaten in Thessalonica, mobbed in Ephesus, and depressed in Athens, but yet I'm still going. I came away from each of these experiences more persuaded than ever that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor things present, nor things to come can separate me from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. I still believe in standing up for the truth because the truth is the greatest thing in the world. This is the end of life. The end of life is not to be happy. The end of life is not to achieve pleasure and avoid pain. The end of life is to do the will of God, come what may. Now I must bring my writing to a close. Timothy is waiting to deliver this letter and I must take leave for another church. 
But just before leaving, I must say to you, as I said to the church at Corinth, that I still believe that love is the most durable power in the world. Over the centuries, many have sought to discover the highest good. This has been the chief quest of ethical philosophy. This was the big question of Greek philosophy. The Epicureans and the Stoics, they sought to answer it. Plato, Aristotle sought to answer it. What is the sum and bonum of life? I think I have the answer, America. I think I've discovered what the highest good is, and the highest good is love. This principle stands at the center of the cosmos. As John says, God is love. He who loves is a participant in the very being of God. He who hates does not know God. So American Christians, you may honor and, and master the intricacies of the English language. You may possess all the eloquence of articulate speech. But even if you speak with the tongues of men and of angels, but have not love, you become a sounding brass or resounding cymbal. You may have the gift of prophecy and understanding of all mysteries. You may be able to break into the storehouse of nature and bring about many insights that men never dreamed were there. You may ascend to the heights of academic achievement and you have all knowledge. You may boast of your great institutions of learning and the boundless extent of your degrees, but all of this amounts to nothing if it's void of love. But even more American Christians, you may give your goods to feed the poor. You may give great gifts to charity. You may tower high in philanthropy. But if you have not love, it means nothing. You may even give your body to be burned and die the death of a martyr. Your spilt blood may be a symbol of honor for generations yet unborn. And thousands may praise your name as history's supreme hero. But even so, if you have not love, your blood was spilt in vain. You must come to see that it is possible for a man to be self-centered in his self-denial and self-righteous in his self-sacrifice. He may be generous in order to feed his ego and pious in order to feed his pride. Man has a tragic capacity to relegate a heightened virtue to a tragic vice. Without love, benevolence becomes egotism and martyrdom becomes spiritual pride. So the greatest of all virtues is love. It is here that we find the true meaning of the Christian faith. This is at the bottom of the cross. The great event on Calvary signifies more than a meaningless drama that took place in the stage of history. It is a telescope by which we look through the long vista of eternity and see the love of God breaking forth into time. It is the eternal reminder to a power-drunk generation that love is the most durable power in the world. And it's at the bottom of the heartbeat of the moral cosmos. Only through achieving this love can one matriculate into the edicts of eternal life. Now I must say goodbye. I hope that this letter will find you strong in the faith. It is probable that I will not get to see you in America, but I will meet you in God's eternity. And now unto him who is able to keep us from falling and lift us from the fatigue of despair to the buoyancy of hope, from the midnight of desperation to the daybreak of joy, to him be power and authority forever and ever. Amen. Yes, that was awesome. Thank you, Charles. Amen. 
So just, you know what, I, I, there's nothing to add to that other than to say it is just as relevant to us in 2021 as it was back in 1956. A clear articulation of what it means for us to follow Jesus in the midst of tumultuous times. And uh, I just, I, you know, have that concern that there are forces, as we seek to follow Jesus, there are forces that want to pull us to the far right, and there are forces that want to pull us to the far left. And what we need to do as the people of God is we need to keep our eyes on God, and we need to follow Him, and we need to, as the North Jersey Vineyard, our commitment is that we keep our eyes on Jesus. Our commitment is that we preach the gospel, not only by what we say, but what we do. Our commitment is to be a multi-ethnic church that stands up for justice, a church that feeds the hungry and that cares for the poor, and a church that does everything that we do in love. That's who we are. That's what we're called to be. And by God's grace, we will carry on the legacy of Paul, the legacy of Martin Luther King, as we continue to try to follow Jesus. And we say, God, for such a time as this, that you would raise up the North Jersey Vineyard Church, that we would stand for you, that we would stand for love, that we would stand for your justice, that we would show the world that the problems that have existed for 60 years, 100 years, thousands of years, that the answers are only found at the foot of the cross. And so, Lord, I thank you, God, that we have the privilege of being your people. God, that you have revealed yourself to us, God, and we don't, we're not worthy of, of your revelation. We're not worthy of your love. And God, I just pray that every single one of us here in this, God, that, that we would recommit ourselves to you, recommit ourselves to your truth, recommit ourselves to your justice, recommit ourselves to your mercy, recommit ourselves to loving our neighbor as we love ourselves, that all of it would be done that would just flow out of our love for you. And so, God, we thank you that you have invited us, Lord, to, 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 to work with you as your sons and daughters. We pray that you'd give us wisdom. We pray that you'd lead us, you'd guide us in these tumultuous times. Lord, that you would be our North Star, that we'd keep our eyes on you and that we'd follow you and that our lives and our church would glorify you. And we thank you, God, for the privilege of doing so in such a time as this, Lord. And we ask for your grace and your mercy in Jesus' name. And I just pray, too, for everyone out here, Lord, whatever stresses, whatever fears, whatever discouragements we're feeling, God, I pray that we would just have our eyes fixed on you and that we would realize, God, that you are for us, you are with us, you are making a way, God. You are tearing down walls. You are accomplishing your purposes. You are bringing your kingdom. You are renewing all things. And so, God, I pray that that truth would comfort us and would strengthen us as we seek to glorify you through our lives. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. We're going to have uh, a ministry time. And so those who are uh, part of the ministry team, is, they're going to go over to my right uh, in, this, in this corner here in the church. And if you want prayer for anything that's going on in your life, we would love to pray for you. Just specifically, though, I know that with all the stuff, all the injustice that's been swirling around, all of the political chaos that's been swirling around, you know, I know that it's, it manifests in conversations around the kitchen table and weird things that are read on, on the Internet. And it just kind of shows up in a lot of ways that just really can 
can make us lose hope, that can discourage us. And I just had a feeling that maybe some of you right now, you just need, you know, you've been carrying this burden, you've been carrying this stress, and, and maybe it would be good for you to respond, to come for ministry, and just let someone pray for you that God would renew you and that God would pour his hope and his strength in you and that God would just affirm to you that, uh, that he's with you and that he's going to use your life to bring truth and to bring glory to his name. All right, so uh, so God bless you guys. Prayer ministry folks, there some are heading over there now, and so please feel free, keep your masks on, but uh, but head over there and get some prayer. God bless you, and uh, we'll see you next week.